0: Well good morning everybody. We begin a new series of sermons today and we're looking at the last third of King David's life from the uh, second book of Samuel in the Old Testament. We looked at the first third of King David's life two years ago in 2017. um, Those years of desperation and danger From David's anointing by the prophet Samuel through to him defeating Goliath, his persecution by Saul, him living as a fugitive in the wilderness, his siding with the Philistines through to the death of Saul. And then last year we looked at the middle third of David's life, the golden years. David becomes king. Conquers Jerusalem, unifies Israel, brings the ark into Jerusalem, shows kindness to Mephibosheth, defeats the Ammonites. But as we saw uh, last year, David stumbled. He commits adultery with Bathsheba and murders her husband Uriah. And as we saw, God forgave David, he he would not die and God would continue to be David's God and David would continue to be God's child and son and king. But as a direct result of that sin, as a direct result of the contempt that David had showed God in that sin and of the strength that that sin gave to God's enemies in Israel, David's own household would suffer violence. Just as he had inflicted violence on the household of Uriah. And so in the last third of King David's life, we watch David deal with perhaps the severest of any trial, dealing with the discipline of a loving God. And so to our text for today. It is a difficult text. For various reasons, I'm going to preach from a rather direct translation of the Hebrew with the idea that you also have your own Bible or the Pew Bible open uh, alongside to compare and uh, um, contrast, um, page 249 uh, in the Pew Bible. Let's begin. And so it was after this. And to Absalom, son of David, was a beautiful sister, and her name was Tamar. And Amnon, son of David, loved her. Well, the first person we meet is Absalom, David's third son. Then, then secondly, we meet Tamar, his beautiful sister. Their mother is Princess Aramalach, uh, daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur uh, We know all of that from chapter 6. Third and last, we meet Amnon, David's firstborn son, heir to his throne. His mother is Ahinoam of Jezreel. Amnon loves Tamar, and although that might sound a bit icky, because... She is his half-sister. In fairness to him, they've been raised in different households and she is beautiful and it's, it's not unknown for young people to develop crushes on close relatives. And also in fairness to Amnon, the word used to describe his feelings for Tamar, that word is the usual standard word for love, the word we might use of a parent's love for their child or of God's love for Israel. His feelings aren't being devalued by our narrator as lust or infatuation. No, he loves her. But it was a distress to Amnon that caused him to be sick for the sake of Tamar, his sister, because she was a virgin, and it was incredible in Amnon's eyes to do anything to or concerning her. It's not uncommon. Amnon becomes lovesick because there doesn't seem to be any hope for this relationship. It's doomed. Why is it doomed? Well, the narrator does not elaborate. Elaborate, But whilst it was not completely unknown for people to marry half-brothers or half-sisters, the law of Moses does in fact ban their relationship. Leviticus 18.9, Do not have sexual relations with your sister, either your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, whether she was born in the same home, Or elsewhere and the Hebrew phrase translated as have sexual relations with is literally uncover the nakedness of the Australian Marriage Act by the way would also does also prohibit their marriage for it is illegal in Australia to marry siblings siblings by mother or by father or by fostering or by adoption or by remarriage whether or not they've ever lived under the same roof but to Amnon was a friend, and his name was Jonadab, son of Shimea, brother of David. And Jonadab was an exceedingly wise man. Enter Jonadab. Amnon's first cousin once removed. He is exceedingly chakam. Uh, What does that word mean? Well, the word could mean skillful, wise, prudent, or it could mean shrewd, crafty, cunning. The context will let us know. And he said to him, why are you like this, son of the king, poorly, morning by morning? Why don't you tell me? And Amnon said to him, it's Tamar, the sister of Absalom, my brother. I love her. Well, uh, Jonadab uses flattery, he uses charm. You're a prince of Israel. The world's at your feet. What could you possibly have that's gotten the better of you? And so Jonadab begs a confidence which is quickly given. And Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and cause yourself to be sick. And your father comes and he sees you and you say to him, Let Tamar, my sister, please come and let her feed me bread, and let her make the bread in my sight, that I may watch her, and I will eat from her hand. Well, uh, now we understand. Jonadab is not wise, but rather he is shrewd, crafty, cunning. He tempts Amnon into deceiving others so that he can secure what he wants, which is exclusive time with Tamar on the basis of a false premise, false pretense. And so Amnon lay down and caused himself to be sick, and the king came to see him. And Amnon said to the king, Let Tamar come now, please, my sister, and let her make in my sight two loaves, and let me eat from her hand. And David sent Tamar to the house, saying, Go please to Amnon's house, your brother, and prepare food for him. Well, Jonadab's plan works like clockwork. David doesn't sense any danger or impropriety. Tamar is Amnon's sister. He finds her presence comforting. Perhaps Amnon and Tamar are close friends. Perhaps they confide in each other, and that would be good and natural for them to be close as siblings. It never occurs to anyone that the two of them would even ever be alone. And Tamar went to Amnon's house, her brother, and he was lying down. And she took the dough and kneaded, and made loaves in his sight, and she cooked the loaves. And she took the pan and emptied it in his presence, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, let everybody leave. And all the men went out from him. And Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food to the bedroom, and let me eat from your hand. And Tamar took the loaves that she had made and brought them to Amnon, her brother, in the bedroom. And she approached him in order that he might eat, and he took a strong hold of her, and he said to her, Come lie down with me, my sister. But she answered him, No, my brother, do not let me be forced, violated, humiliated, oppressed, because let not such a thing be done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. And as for me, where would I take the shame? And you would be like one of the fools in Israel. And now, please speak, please, to the king, because he will not withhold me from you. Well, uh, Tamar now makes the first of two speeches. She uses a word that the NIV translates as force. Um, violate may be a better translation. The word has the sense not just of forcing somebody to do something, but forcing them and in in doing so subjecting them in a way that is humiliating and dehumanizing. She refuses consent and begs not to be violated. Now, the Old Testament does not have a specific word for rape, but it condemns sex before and outside of marriage, whether it be consensual or not. We need to understand her speech, that she she is referring to sex before marriage, whether consensual or not. Sex before marriage is a disgrace, not something that is in any way appropriate for God's people. Sex before marriage would bring shame to her and cast him ever ever thereafter as a fool. In other words, somebody who doesn't know God or how to behave. Tamar says it. Sex before marriage is both evil and stupid. People who belong to God should know better. Tamar now gives the advice that Jonadab should have given right from the start. Speak to the king. Tamar says that King David will allow them to be married. Although, as we have already seen, the law of Moses forbade their union, I won't contradict Tamar. She knew David better than than I do, and so we must believe her that David would probably have allowed their union despite it being unlawful from a Mosaic perspective, from the point of view of the law of Moses. Again, if we do Tamar the honor of taking her words at face value, we also see another thing that might surprise us She's not unwilling to marry Amnon. But Amnon must go about it the right way. He must, sh- he must seek her father's consent. But he was not willing to listen to her voice, and he was stronger than her, and he forced, oppressed, humiliated, violated her, and uh, lay down with her. And Amnon hated her, an exceedingly great hatred, because the hatred was greater with which he hated her than the love by which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up and get out! Amnon's backflip may strike us as odd, but if you think about it, it's entirely predictable. Sexual intercourse is, of course, an incredibly intimate and precious thing. To be intimate is to be vulnerable, and to be vulnerable is to be in danger, to be in danger of rejection. Uncovering her nakedness, Ammon has forced both Tamar to be intimate with him and he has forced himself to be intimate with Tamar, although he... adored Tamar, felt attracted to her, thought he'd do anything for her, he was completely psychologically unprepared for the realities of copulation. Having satisfied his own desires, in an instant all he's left with is just his own shame, guilt, fear, and self-disgust, of which Tamar is now an unbearable reminder. Couples that come together too fast Too close, too quickly, uh, very, very likely like atoms just to rebound just as fast. And she said to him, No, because this is a greater evil than the other evil you did with me to send me away. Tamar gives her second speech. Again, her words shine in this dark narrative with godly wisdom she understands they have become one flesh. What Amnon did was evil. To jump the gun, to grasp the fruit of the covenant without creating the covenant, to now act as though they weren't one flesh would be an even greater evil. Whether we understand her or not, whether we agree with her or not, Tamar even now is prepared to marry Amnon her refusal to leave shows up Amnon's character. Whilst he is unwilling to take responsibility for his own actions, she staggeringly is. But he was not willing to listen to her. And he called his servant boy and said, send please this one away from me to the outside and bolt the door after her. This is all chillingly vicious and cruel. This is not an order the servant boy should obey. Even in ancient Israel, especially in ancient Israel, this servant boy should know and understand that he will become an accomplice to a very serious crime if he now does as he is told. And on her was a multicolored robe. Because thus the daughters of the king Used to dress the virgins in such robes And he made her leave His servant To the outside And he bolted the door after her And Tamar Put ashes on her head And the multicolored robe Which she was wearing She tore And she put her hand on her head And she went away Going and crying and uh, this is is heart wrenching the, the the tearing of the robe, the ashes on her head, the public weeping these actions all signal loudly and publicly her need for her, her need for help. This is a cry for help uh, this is a, 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 a cry for justice. this is her need, um, declaring it publicly for comfort and for counsel. Perhaps if we, if, if we were going to translate these words into our time and place, they might read, and she went straight to the police. And Absalom, her brother, said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? And now, my sister, cause yourself to be silent. He, he is your brother. Do not take this thing to heart. And Tamar said, dwelt in the house of Absalom, her brother, as a desolate woman. Absalom's uh, response is so inadequate as to invite contempt. He fails in terms of both words and actions. His words, undoubtedly intended to comfort his sister, fail because he's saying that it doesn't really matter, that it's not something to get upset about, then Amnon can't have meant it personally. And in fact, at every point, the truth is opposite. What happens to Tamar does matter. It is a very big thing, and Amnon did something unimaginably vicious and cruel. Absalom makes an immature mistake. The mistake of thinking that saying things as though they were true because we'd like them to be true can make them true. But that is untrue. Absalom fails his sister in terms of his words. He fails his sister in terms of action. What he must do right now is grab a hold of Amnon and take him to the king. According to the law of Moses, David must judge. If he decides that this is a seduction, that is to say the young woman was coerced but not entirely unwilling but perhaps tricked, seduced, the the couple must marry, Exodus 22. If he decides this is fornication, that they were both equally willing, both of them must die, death by stoning, Deuteronomy 22. If he finds Amnon guilty of violation, which we all know to be the actual crime, then Amnon is to be stoned to death at the city gate, Deuteronomy 22. In this case, Tamar will be exonerated. She is publicly restored, without blame, free to marry. As we see here, Absalom's failure to act means that she has nowhere to go psychologically devastated and socially a pariah and outcast she's condemned to being a lifelong dependent in her brother's household without hope of husband children or meaningful employment or active engagement with the outside world and king david and sorry and the king david heard about all these things, and he was exceedingly angry. And Absalom did not speak with Amnon, either evil or good, because Absalom hated Amnon over the thing by which he had violated Tamar, his sister. King David also fails to act. He was very angry, but actually he did nothing. In his inaction, David fails all of them. Tamar, Absalom, and Amnon. Now, although the law of Moses is exceedingly clear in its condemnation of sex outside of marriage, adultery, fornication, rape, these three things, all demanding the death penalty in the law of Moses, death by stoning at the city gate, that is to say, by the hand of a panel of judges, There actually is no biblical or historical evidence of anyone actually ever being stoned to death for sexual sin. Perhaps Israel knew that was never going to work as law. But theologically, it does work. Adultery, fornication, and rape, each have within them the power to destroy lives. And that needs to be acknowledged and understood. David himself asked for and received forgiveness for sexual sin. He did in many ways take responsibility for his decisions. Amnon, therefore, doesn't have to die, but he does have to own what he's done and take responsibility for it one way or another. David fails Amnon. David also fails his daughter because she needs to be exonerated and redeemed. David fails Amnon because, in another way, because his brother Absalom is going to murder him. That's what happens now, next, before the end of the chapter. And David fails Absalom because in abdicating from his responsibility to administer justice, he allows the conditions in which Absalom nurses his grudge, his desire for revenge. David's failure here will lead over the next few chapters to the near total collapse of his own household. So let's take stock. It can probably go without saying, in other words, I am going to say it, albeit briefly, that this text is consistent with the biblical belief that desire is not vocation, calling, and that we live in a very dangerous world when people come to believe that personal fulfillment equates with the satisfaction of every desire. More and more, of course, we do actually live in that dangerous world. Secondly, in our text today, there are five men and one woman. The five men are Absalom, Amnon, Jonadab, Amnon's servant boy, and King David. All five men behave disgracefully really, really disgracefully. In contrast, Amnon's words and behavior mark her out as the only wise and understanding person, the only one with any integrity, the only righteous person in this text. What did I say? That's that's not a good word slip to make, is it? (laughs) Let's say the whole sentence again. We've got five guys in contrast. Our woman, Tamar, Tamar's words and behavior mark her out as the only wise person present, the only righteous one in this text. And this is something to reflect on, that the books of the Bible, the Old and New Testaments, they were written in the context of patriarchy. Patriarchy means, literally, the father rules. And patriarchal societies are hierarchical. Men being superior to women, just as adults are superior to children. According to the worldview in which the Bible was written, men are superior to women physically, intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually. Physically, men are stronger than women. Women are the weaker sex. Intellectually, men are smarter than women, less prone to false teaching, myths, and, hear the language, old wives' tales. Emotionally, men are more stable than women, less prone to hysteria. Spiritually, men are less easily tempted than women, who are more quickly persuaded into sin. Patriarchal societies can be very stable, lasting millennia, if the functional upshot of these four assumptions is that men use their culturally endowed superiority of power to protect women and children. And indeed, the Western world believed all of these four assumptions, these patriarchal assumptions, they believed them to be true and self-evident for centuries, really up until perhaps the early 19th century. Then, with Jane Austen and the Brontes and many, many others fracking the foundations, these assumptions were formally discarded in the middle of the 20th century. Today, we live in a world that, in contrast to patriarchy, passionately believes in gender equality, even if that equality is yet to be fully realized. So too, so then, now to the Bible. As a human document, it is not difficult to find the assumptions of patriarchy all through it, and we should not be shocked when we find them there. For example, in today's text, men are defined with reference to their fathers. The woman is is defined with reference to her brother. Also, we never find out how Tamar feels about Amnon. Presumably that's because it never occurred to the narrator that that was relevant. And as we listen to Tamar, we hear even in her own voice the presuppositions of patriarchy. She believes, she believes that it is her father who decides who she can and can't marry. And she consents to marry Amnon both before and after she's raped by him in a way that might horrify us today. But she does that in conformity to the standards of her patriarchal age. However, whilst all the evidence of patriarchy is there, that shouldn't blind us to the fact that this text is ultimately hostile to, indeed caustic, to patriarchy. Tamar is our heroine. She's got gumption, integrity, and wisdom. And as for the men, whilst only one man is a rapist, they are collectively weaklings, cowards, infantile, incompetent, cruel, brainless, and spineless. My point is this. Even though the Bible is the product, humanly speaking, of patriarchal cultures, as a divine document, it is toxic to patriarchy. It reads, in other words, in the context of patriarchy, as a something of a feminist manifesto. The Bible is itself ultimately condemning of those four assumptions I outlined a moment ago, the four ways in which men are superior to women. The Bible itself provides us with all the evidence we need to destroy them. Is the Bible patriarchal? We misunderstand it if we don't understand that it is and it isn't, both. Now to David. This text really is about David. Although he was furious about what had happened, most people guessed pretty quickly as to why it was that he did nothing. He did nothing because if he had, everyone would have called him a hypocrite. He himself was an adulterer with a track record of sexual sin. In his dealings with Bathsheba and Uriah, he'd lost his moral authority, or at least he so thought, to judge the actions of others. That's why he was silent. That's why he sat on his hands. He he may have felt a hypocrite if he'd brought his own firstborn son before the council's. He may have been called a hypocrite if he had done that. But actually, bringing judgment was God's call on his life. It was his vocation. That was precisely what God was expecting him to do. Judging was his job. And if he had just done his job, it would have stopped the process that now we all have to witness over the next few weeks the destruction of his household beginning with the murder, we're beginning with the rape of Tamar and the murder of Amnon. Well, learning from David, it, this is this is this is a familiar thing. Um, w- w- when when we ourselves uh, um, when we ourselves allow a sin in our own lives, we we find it impossible to feel it's terribly serious or important, or that we have the right to judge others. And I have found that parents are sometimes reticent to teach their children that sex before marriage is both evil and stupid if they themselves gave in to the temptation before they were married. Very often the parents have repented of their own sin, they've received forgiveness, but they feel hypocritical if they judge or lay down the law with respect to their teenage children, forgetting that judging is their job. And we, as a Christian community, are failing our young people very severely if we falter from teaching them clearly. Sex before marriage is both evil and stupid. This disgraceful thing should not be done in Israel. That is to say, it is completely unacceptable for the covenant people of God. And lastly, we, as a Christian community, are failing tame her very severely if we continue to offer her the platitudes of Absalom oh dear, I'm so sorry that this has happened but try not to think about it, don't tell anyone it doesn't really matter it does matter it's not nothing sexual sin destroys lives the Me Too movement is struggling to make sense of this So too is the global church, and one of the global church's many sins is that she has failed victims of sexual abuse very severely by offering them the consolations of Absalom. But since the days of Moses and Mount Sinai, we've all known it, it, sexual sin destroys lives. If today's text leaves you feeling uh, distressed because of painful memories, there are many places that you can turn to for help, for prayer ministry and the healing of hearts, for justice and for counsel, for physical, emotional and spiritual healing. Um, I, I can pray and I can refer If you'd like to talk to a woman, uh, Katie and uh, Julie, uh, wise women amongst many, many wise women here at St. Barnabas who are happy uh, to talk. Uh, Next week we meet another wise woman, uh, the wise woman of Tekoa, 2 Samuel 14. The Lord be with you.